Good afternoon and uh, welcome to today's event at Google on how our crisis changing central bank uh, doctrines. I am uh, I'm really delighted to start again um, uh, a session which is truly hybrid and which is the sessions that we are going to have from now on I think with both a live audience that is not Brugalian and uh, uh, you, the audience, which is uh, online. And of course, delighted that the speakers today, are, or some of the speakers at least, are with us uh, in at Bruegel. Welcome and, and thank you for joining us. Um, the session today continues uh, um, our efforts in the past few months to uh, discuss central banking and how events are unfolding when it comes to monetary policy. This time we take a, a step back. We're looking a little bit at the historical changes in the central banking world. And we are doing this on the occasion of a very special publication that has just come out. I have it here in front of me, uh, the Revue d'Economie Financière, a special issue on uh, central banking in times of crisis and what are the lessons learned. And the, author, the editors and authors of this special issue are uh, the speakers today. And I'm delighted that we have four of the speakers with us uh, here today. Perlance Perez, who's here on my right and physically at Bruegel, Benoit Queré, who is uh, joining us online, uh, Hans-Helmut Kotz, who is also present with us today, and Athanasios Ossonidis, who is joining us from the US. Welcome, everybody, and I hope that our speakers who are online uh, can hear us. And I would actually like to give the floor first to the editors of this, uh, of this uh, special issue to give us a small introduction. And Hans-Helmut, I would like to start with you. Thank you very <coughs> sorry. Thank you very much, Maria. It's a great honor and pleasure to be here. <coughs> I shouldn't run a commercial, but uh, Bruegel is, of course, one of the, those institutions who really informed the debate in Europe, also on monetary policy issues. So really uh, grateful to to be with you. Um, I wanted to use slides, if um, if possible. Um, you're right, Maria. It's it's about thinking uh, how history has informed monetary policy making. And um, what you see if you look at history is that crises have always been decisive in terms of framing monetary policy approaches. Here it is. And how have they been um, framing uh, those monetary policy approaches? So mainly by running into an accident. Um, and I wanted to show you uh, um, a few accidents. So th the first one, which I would like to show, but we could go much further down in history, is the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system, which led uh, to the Bundesbank being forced to come up with a new policy framework, which turned out to be um, what the Bundesbank later on called pragmatic uh, monetarism. And it meant that there wasn't the, the North Star of monetary policy in, uh, in controlling FX rate, it was monetary base, central bank base, and later on M M3. The next uh, lesson drawn was another accident. I have to look here. It was Perron's. Uh, is uh, aware of that? It was uh, September uh, 1992 when um, the UK had to go out of the uh, European monetary system because they would have been forced to raise interest rates in the face of the deepest crisis since the early 19th. Actually, they did it, went up to 14%, but then they gave up. Uh, so, And they had to uh, come up with another uh, framework, which was um, uh, uh, inflation targeting. 
turned out to become the dominating monetary policy uh, framework in the 1990s. So um, it created the consensus in mon monetary modern monetary policy. And I highlight here this modern, um, because later on we will come to postmodern. Uh, I hope Benoit doesn't listen now. <laughs> I wanted to call this the postmodern <laughs> monetary policy. He, he, he thought that's, that's not proper. So modern meant you had an objective function where you minimize deviation uh, from inflation target and deviation from output, trend output. Inflation target two, output, output trend, output gap. One of our authors who is also here on this panel, Athanasius, has shown in the early 2000s how fiendishly difficult, practically impossible it is to capture properly the output gap. And in, in particular, Artenasius came up with the idea that, that you have to look at real-time data, data available to those who are taking the decisions uh, and not after, after 10 years of, of, of revision. So it, what followed was a period which was called dubbed great moderation. Uh, Mervyn came, uh, King came up with a nicer notion. He called it nice, meaning it was a period where you had uh, low inflation, consistent growth, no need to, to make lots of uh, efforts in terms of thinking about strategy, which broke apart after the great financial crisis, which uh, happened, of course, in... We are now backdating it a little bit. It happened on... started on August 8, 9, 2007. Um, and what became clear there and that's why it became postmodern. Modern monetary policy was about inflation control, output uh, gap, um, but it didn't touch upon um, the third and original objective of why central banks have been basically created, creating underwriting financial stability. So that wasn't, wasn't captured. Now, that's the reason why I use this, uh, these slides. You see here, I hope you see it, you see, at a certain point, uh, rates became so low that they were basically ineffective. So we had to come up with a different idea to control monetary policy. So monetary policy was forced to become unconventional. Conventional was control of interbank money rates. Unconventional was you ran your monetary policy by either lengthening the central bank balance sheet or changing the structure of the central bank balance sheet credit easing, quantitative uh, easing. In Europe, in addition, we have this issue of uh, potential instabilities as a result of uh, spread widening across member states because they have very ba different background conditions, respond differently to, to shocks. So from 2007 onwards, Benoit, you don't have to look, look at this, postmodern. So policy rates at uh, their lower bound, and the, uh, the uh, change in the approach to running the balance sheet, which was very much dependent on the context. For example, in Europe, we had uh, what uh, President Trichet called enhanced credit support. We were mainly looking at banks. In the US, you had quantitative easing. The capital markets are dominating there, hence it was much more focused on, on capital markets. 
So what was going on was, um, what started it off, there was um, the implosion of interbank man money markets, no trust anymore. And uh, you see it here. Um, suddenly in August, spreads widened dramatically between secured and unsecured interbank money markets. That's not shocking for anybody who doesn't work in the, that domain, but it was unprecedented. And it meant uh, that we had come up with a, uh, with a stabilizing device to stabilize interbank money markets. And the ECB did just that, uh, intervened on August 8, 9, uh, with uh, 92 billion crows, 60 billion net, was heavily criticized, uh, hyperactive, panicky, um, but the diagnosis of the ECB was correct. The uh, ECB diagnosed it as a run of the banks on themselves in the wholesale interbank money market. So this was panicky, Maria, look, this was panicky. How would you call that? So interventions set the bank's balance sheet uh, uh, balloon. Now, in 2018-2020, there was a um, review of the strategy, and I won't go long into that, but it was basically about codifying the post-modern monetary policy. So all the tools which were new, in fact, historically, we had many of them before, but all the tools which were new in the modern world um, were now part of the traditional um, monetary policy frameworks. Uh, and we have authors like Philip Lane uh, and Rich Clarida um, who are explaining uh, the, the, the approach of the Fed and the, uh, and the ECB. But moreover, additional objectives came uh, on, the, on the field. And they had to do with um, climate risk. They had to do with fiscal coordination. So all the difficult stuff which I won't touch upon, which is the job of LS. <laughs> Let me stop here. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Hasselmo. Uh, That's actually wonderful. I'll give the word directly to uh, Benoit. Benoit, do you hear us? Yes, uh, thank you very much, Maria, and, uh, and good afternoon. Good morning to uh, Athanasios. Uh, and sorry for not being able to join uh, in person. I'm uh, isolated at home with COVID, which uh, I guess uh, is a reminder that. Uh, we may want to discuss normalization, but the situation is, is not quite normal yet Indeed. in many aspects. Uh, uh, just to uh, directly follow up on what uh, Anselmut said, I mean, first let me say that uh, uh, both uh, Anselmut and I were incredibly uh, thrilled and proud to be coordinating this uh, issue of the Revue Economie Financière with so many uh, brilliant authors, uh, one of them, Athanasios, being here with us today. Um, and um, to, to follow up on what uh, Hanselmut just said, I mean, we uh, devote significant space uh, in, this, uh, in this issue to discuss how central banks have uh, consolidated uh, their new knowledge and their new understanding of the world, uh, what uh, Hanselmut has called the postmodern approach to, uh, to uh, monetary theory, uh, particularly uh, into uh, their new monetary policy frameworks. And uh, we have two uh, uh, really deep contributions by Philip Lane and by uh, Rich Clarida explaining what the Fed and the ECB have been up to uh, with their new uh, monetary policy uh, frameworks. 
And uh, to, to give a really broad brush description, I mean, the, these two new frameworks, so the Fed framework issued in 2020 and the, and the ECB framework issued in 2021 have been primarily uh, consolidation of all the, all the novelties of, uh, brought up by the crisis into, uh, uh, into uh, uh, united frameworks. So including the new instruments, QE, uh, uh, for guidance, negative rates and the like. Uh, but th th there were also some novelties in terms of how the, uh, the strategy was uh, formulated. In the case of the Fed, the two main novelties, in my view, were first uh, this notion that uh, you should be able to make up for uh, past shortfalls, shortfalls in inflation by temporarily overshooting 2%, uh, which can be described also as a temporary price level targeting. Uh, and then, and then reversion to uh, to flexible inflation targeting once uh, once rates have been lifted. Uh, and the other novelty was uh, a semantic one, but still very important, which was to, to refer to employment, uh, to the Fed uh, 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 objective to address employment shortfalls, which is a very significant departure to past practice, which was uh, uh, which was uh, um, uh, referring to uh, to the. Um, to the uh, natural level of unemployment, the nail. So it kind of, in a way, raises the bar uh, uh, very significantly when it comes to the uh, importance of the employment uh, objective in the, uh, in the Fed uh, dual mandate. Uh, now, moving to the ECB, uh, it's again a lot of, uh, a lot of codification of, exist of, of past practices into a, uh, into a single strategy. There is also a clarification that the, uh, the, uh, the objective of the ECB is about uh, bringing, bringing inflation back to 2% uh, and, uh, and about the objective being symmetric around 2%, which was kind of implicitly or maybe uh, sometimes clarified uh, by, uh, by ECB uh, policymakers, but now it's, uh, now it's written uh, in the, uh, into stone uh, once, once for all that it's 2% and it has to be symmetric. Um, and uh, coming with that, a notion that uh, a very strong recognition of the, of, the, of the limitations created by the lower bound uh, and uh, this notion that monetary policy should be particularly forceful or, or persistent when close to the lower bound, uh, which on which the ECB insisted very much uh, uh, in, in 2021 when the strategy was issued. Um, and something which is kind of related to what the Fed uh, had done, uh, which is the notion that uh, this may imply a transitory period uh, in which inflation uh, would be moderately above target. Uh, so not explained the same way, but also the possibility of an overshooting above uh, above two percent, um, and then also recognition of macrofinancial uh, linkages uh, of the importance of climate change. But Pierre Blanche may want to come back on this, and more technical considerations such as the inclusion of uh, owner occupied. Uh, housing cost in the, in the price index, which is also important, uh, although more technical. Um, so um, what, of course, uh, is not included in these monetary policy strategies because it cannot is uh, the interaction between monetary policy and fiscal policy. Uh, and I'm sure Athanasios will, will elaborate on this, but uh, let me just say that the, uh, the approach toward this interaction has changed uh, uh, substantially uh, in Europe with the crisis. Um, the, uh, the notion in Europe before the, before the Eurozone crisis was that um, basically we had fiscal rules and fiscal rules should be credible so that monetary policy would not have to care about the fiscal stance. That was the, uh, 
that was the uh, the premises, uh, and that was the plan. And uh, the plan absolutely did not work uh, for different reasons. First, fiscal rules were not credible. Uh, that's not what we're going to discuss today. That would deserve another seminar. Um, second, uh, there are two defining moments in 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 in, in, in opposite directions. First, we had the post. Uh, financial crisis uh, 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 years where the fiscal stance was tightened uh, and probably over tight and uh, forced the ECB to do more. Um, so in a way, the ECB was caught on the wrong side of the Stackelberg equilibrium and had to react to an overly tight fiscal policy, which was absolutely not the plan. Um, and second, uh, we had the uh, COVID episode closer to us where uh, fiscal policy was very forceful uh, and uh, and uh, supported very well monetary policy. So two lessons, in a way, one negative lesson, one positive lesson, which uh, certainly uh, uh, have prompted European policymakers to uh, to um, to uh, revisit uh, the their approach to coordination between monetary policy and and fiscal policy. But in addition to that, uh, and that would be my last remark, uh, there was also a sense, and that's very well explained in a paper in uh, in our. Uh, issued by uh, Steve Cecchetti and, uh, and Tim Schoenholz. There was also a sense that um, the way monetary policy instruments have evolved, that you're moving from focusing in a quantitative way to the, to the, on the provision of, uh, of, of central bank liabilities, central bank reserves, to uh, a new world where the central bank is setting the price of a broad range of assets uh, across long maturities and across, across the credit spectrum. Uh, in order to, to steer the economy back to equilibrium, uh, that uh, and, and, and the, the notion that the, the balance sheet of the central bank was evolving towards being a credit surface, which the the, uh, the central bank could optimize to, uh, to steer the economy, that has been, in fact, incredibly successful, uh, but also it has created a, uh, a, a broad discussion on whether central banks have crossed the line between monetary policy and fiscal policy. Because obviously, when you start setting the price of many uh, uh, many uh, risk assets uh, that also has allocative and distributive consequences, which are traditionally uh, uh, traditionally traditionally assigned to, to fiscal policy rather than to monetary policy. Um, so this is the discussion. I think what we what would be really uh, important to discuss today, and that these are just questions I would like to throw into the discussion, is first whether these new strategies. Um, uh, decided by central banks after uh, the um, uh, uh, drawing the lessons of the of the of the non-conventional episodes, whether uh, how contingent uh, uh, are these strategies to the to the then prevailing economic and political environment, and how robust are they to the new environment, with uh, more substantial inflationary pressures and uh, supply chain disruptions and geopolitical uncertainty, which is the world we are in. Uh, we are in today, uh, and do these new strategies have anything to say to today's questions, such as uh, what can be the role of quantitative tightening relative to uh, uh, raising interest rates, for instance, uh, in, uh, in steering monetary policy, uh, or uh, does forward guidance still uh, exist at all? Uh, these are the questions that are that maybe the new strategies uh, don't really uh, uh, provide answers to, uh, but that's a question I'm asking. Uh, and a second question would be, how does the, the new partnership between monetary policy and fiscal policy, uh, will, uh, how will it morph in the current economic environment, where uh, fiscal policy should be expected to cushion the uh, consequences of the, of the war and the global disruptions on aggregate demand, 
while not adding to inflationary pressures, which seems as, a, as an impossible challenge. It is, in, in fact, possible if its uh, if fiscal policy is about public investment. Uh, and so that there is an elegant way to reconcile uh, political aspirations to, uh, to build more um, uh, resilience and more autonomy uh, in our economies, uh, supporting aggregate demand, and at the same time, not creating additional inflationary pressures. Uh, but the question is, uh, will, will the current political economy deliver that kind of outcome? Uh, and, uh, and I think the answer is still uh, in, the, in the air. And maybe the last question, but here I'm anticipating maybe on, uh, on Pierre Vanche's discussion, is whether this kind of more multidimensional monetary policy strategy that we have, that has emerged from the crisis, uh, does it, uh, can it, um, is it well accommodated by the current accountability framework, which has been designed uh, to fit a monetary policy uh, with a single objective and a single instrument? And, and should the accountability framework of the central bank uh, uh, evolve in reaction to this uh, more uh, multidimensional and more granular approach to the monetary policy? So these are too many questions, and I stop. <laughs> Indeed, thank you very much, Benoit. But you've raised all the questions that I'm sure uh, uh, that our audience has in their mind. And with that, let me just remind you that you can ask questions on Slido with the hashtag monetary. I'm moni I am looking at this, so I will be able to hopefully weave the questions into our discussion. But with that, I move straight to uh, Athanasius, who's going to tell us something about, I believe, the fiscal and the monetary interdependencies. Athanasius. Uh, thank you, Maria. And uh, let me start by also thanking uh, uh, Benoit and Helmut for inviting me to contribute to this uh, 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 very interesting uh, volume. And uh, reading, reading through the whole thing, indeed, is quite informative for, for understanding how uh, central bank policies have changed uh, the different aspects, analysis of many, many central banks. So what I'm going to do is, is focus on the experience of, uh, of the ECB by drawing some comparisons on, uh, with, uh, with the Federal Reserve. And I will share uh, a, a couple of slides if you, uh, if you allow me. I have my slides here. I'll get to that in a sec. And um, if you can see from the slide, I'm starting with, uh, uh, with uh, a comparison of uh, unemployment rates uh, 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 on the left uh, panel between the uh, United States and the Euro area and uh, two crises. Uh, the uh, first crisis, the global financial crisis, September 2008 was, uh, was when that crisis started and we had this massive response by central banks around, around the world. You can see here how massive the cost was in terms of the unemployment rate. I focus on this because economic stability is one of the is one of the objectives of central banks that I want to get uh, back to. And I want to, I want us to recognize how much better the response to the uh, uh, COVID-19 crisis was. Uh, in March 2020, we, have we had another shock, and this was handled much better by authorities on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, monetary policy was far more decisive, and I will, I will mention two aspects of that that were critical, drawing lessons on the experience from the global financial crisis. And also, fiscal policy was, uh, was far more important in this crisis, facilitated with, with monetary policy. And on this, one I on this point, I want to touch on something that, that Benoit uh, uh, mentioned <coughs> a few minutes ago. I also have on the right-hand side of this panel 
a, a comparison of the unemployment rates of the four largest uh, uh, euro area member states. This is to illustrate uh, what Hans Helmut mentioned. We have this additional complication in the euro area of uh, heterogeneity because when monetary policy does not work very well uh, everywhere in the euro area, uh, then uh, monetary policy and, and the monetary fiscal mix are not appropriate to meet conditions. Indeed, this is the experience we have had for many years after the uh, global financial crisis leading to this substantial uh, divergency. So I'm going to start by giving credit to the ECB and to governments in the euro area for managing to handle the pandemic much, much better than the aftermath of the global financial crisis. I think we need to recognize this and draw lessons from, uh, uh, from that. Now, uh, there are uh, one complication that, uh, that came up briefly in Hans Helmut's uh, uh, presentation is the fact that uh, since the global financial crisis in September 2008, we have an additional constraint, which is one of the reasons why central banks have changed their frameworks on both sides of the Atlantic recently. And that has been the secular decline of the natural rate of interest, uh, the, uh, the concept that central bankers uh, refer to as R star. Uh, when the natural rate of interest is very low, then cutting interest rates is not sufficient to provide accommodation to bring out an economy out of a recession. This is a problem that the uh, Fed and the ECB experienced both after the 2008 recession, and this actually became even more acute uh, with the COVID uh, uh, pandemic in the case of the, uh, uh, of the ECB, as Hans Helmut uh, uh, showed, uh, the ECB was already operating with, uh, with negative interest rates uh, in March of 2020 when massive additional accommodation was, uh, was necessary. So what is, uh, what is the indicated response to that? Um, Benoit mentioned, uh, uh, and, uh, and Hans Helmut mentioned uh, uh, unconventional policies, forward guidance, and so forth. But really, the biggest, most important uh, tool that central banks have in the circumstances in the balance sheet, by expanding the balance sheet with purchases of government debt and other assets and provision of liquidity, uh, the uh, uh, central banks can provide additional accommodation. This has two important effects that were, uh, uh, whose usefulness was demonstrated very nicely with, with the COVID pandemic. One is the provision of accommodation the way monetary policy works. The other is the facilitation of easier fiscal policy by having, uh, by supporting much lower long-term uh, interest rates, uh, central banks doing quantitative easing, reduce the cost of refinancing for government debt. This allows fiscal expansions that can replace part of the monetary policy accommodation that cannot be provided uh, at the effective lower bound. And you can see here, the responses of the central banks in the two crises, massive responses in massive increases of the balance sheet, but you also see that the ECB had some difficulties. Part of it was concerns about limitations of its mandate, whether it could purchase government debt. Part of it was legal challenges. We have had a number of lawsuits against the ECB. This led to policy mistakes, like you can see here, the decline in the balance sheet. All of these things contributed to an environment where Inflation after the global financial crisis was too low, especially in the euro area, but it was also somewhat low in the United States as well. What I want you to do here is compare this with the response to the, to the, to the pandemic. There was no hesitation whatsoever by either central bank to expand the balance sheet as much as was necessary 
to provide monetary policy accommodation and facilitate fiscal expansion. And this is one of the important lessons that both central banks have demonstrated they have picked up as a result of, uh, uh, of, this, of this policy. The other issue we have to deal with in the euro area, as, uh, as has Helmut pointed out, is the fragmentation of monetary policy. And this was also much, much better handled during the pandemic. What I show in this chart is, uh, is uh, uh, on the left uh, panel, a two-year government bond yields and, uh, and the uh, OIS rate at the corresponding maturity. On the right panel, the 10-year government bond yields at the corresponding panel. You can see how uh, fragmentation uh, created and divergence of, uh, of interest rates uh, in the euro area, both in the two-year and 10-year horizon. This is actually what explains why we have this divergence in monetary policy and economic conditions across euro area member states. This is extremely unstable, and you will notice here that during COVID, after, after an initial scare, something happened. And uh, the something that happened is an important decision by the ECB that actually stabilized markets and avoided further fragmentation during, uh, during this period, both at the two-year maturity and the 10-year maturity, even though, you know, for those, of, for those who, uh, who sometimes say that, you know, all of these divergences can be explained with differences in fiscal policy, that's actually not the case. We have much higher debt ratios and the need for a fiscal expansion during COVID that was as intense as we had during the global financial crisis. None of that affected uh, government bond yields uh, uh, as uh, 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 10 years ago because of the policies that have been adopted by, by, the, by the ECB. And, and I want to turn to that point and say, what exactly did the ECB do that worked so nicely here? What was one of the, broad, one of the lessons drawn from that? Well, this goes back to a flaw in the ECB monetary policy framework it has to do with the reliance of, on credit rating agencies to determine eligibility of government debt in ECB operations. Now, the ECB is the only central bank uh, uh, that is actually uh, relying on credit rating agencies to determine whether it should be operating with government debt. It's, uh, it's not considered good practice at all. As a matter of fact, it's known that this practice can support adverse self-fulfilling equilibria and induce occasional debt rollover crisis that would be avoidable with a better policy framework. And indeed, this is, this is, the, this is the cause of some of the tensions that we had seen in the euro area that were handled much, much better during COVID. How did the ECB handle these things during COVID? Well, there was an intense episode, but on April 22, 2020, the ECB suspended its reliance on credit rating agencies for determining the eligibility of government debt, and in this way, effectively made them irrelevant and completely moved off the table the possibility of having debt, roll, debt rollover crisis during COVID. And this was an important innovation, frankly, an important innovation that uh, I hope that will be, uh, will, will, uh, uh, will be reconsidered in the future. But I have to say, uh, uh, responding a little bit to, uh, to Benoit's comment about where we are headed and how the current crisis may evolve, on March 24th of this year, unfortunately, the ECB decided to revert to its pre-pandemic regime of perpetual fragility. So per personally, I have some concerns about where the euro area is headed right now. Let me show you the data. 
this is the, the, the remarkably powerful decision the ECB took on March on, on April 22nd, 2020, completely stabilized the uh, spreads in the euro area, both at the two-year maturity, the 10-year maturity. You can see how narrow spreads were last year, uh, despite the fact that we have divergence in deficits, divergence in, in debt levels, these spreads ordinarily with good monetary policy should be very low in double digits or for short maturities, single digits even. And frankly, uh, this has worked very well during the pandemic. One of the concerns is that with ACB going back to its pre-pandemic framework, I would now expect a widening of the spreads and uh, uh, another occasional crisis to appear in the future. And we can see some of that already, both at the two-year maturity and the 10-year maturity. Uh, I'm gonna end by pointing out that uh, a lot of central banks have actually drawn correct lessons from the global financial crisis in the decade after that. We have had massive improvements in some aspects of, of monetary policy frameworks. In the case of the ECB, it's absolutely critical uh, that, that the ECB adopted a clear 2% inflation objective and has been using um, uh, its balance sheet and interest rate uh, tools properly in a symmetric fashion to achieve its 2% objective. This is, this is very good and, and I, I, I hope will continue going forward. Where I think we still have a problem in the euro area is that the ECB has not yet dealt uh, 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 as, uh, as well as it could with the fragmentation uh, challenge. Uh, faced in the euro area, and frankly, uh, if, uh, uh, if the uh, uh, current situation with, uh, uh, with the war uh, in Ukraine uh, deteriorates, uh, uh, this will uh, invite uh, additional trouble uh, in the euro area and additional challenge. So I'm close by saying that, you know, war makes all of us uh, uh, poorer. It, it, it's really important to work uh, uh, together in, uh, in, in Europe uh, uh, for the benefit of, of all. Thank you. Thank you very much, Athanasios, and uh, I cannot uh, agree with you uh, more on, the, on your last point. But before we take some, I've seen now there's many questions coming uh, from our audience. Uh, Pervesh, you have uh, uh, also the floor, and they will take a few questions, please. Thank you very much, Maria. Thank you uh, also to Bruegel, because as uh, chair of uh, AEFR Association Europe Finance Regulation, uh, which is uh, publishing this uh, Revue d'Economie Financière, we are very proud and very, very pleased for this first collaboration with uh, Bruegel because uh, uh, AFR is a Paris-based uh, think tank, but the purpose of this new think tank, it's not even one year old, is also to make sure we have a, a strong and consistent dialogue uh, with the European uh, atmosphere. Um, thank you also to our two uh, pilots, uh, Hans Helmut and Benoit, for uh, uh, being able to have this uh, very exciting uh, uh, issue. Uh, of course, as everybody knows, and it's been already mentioned, it was uh, published and written uh, before uh, the war in Ukraine, before the main topic about monetary policy would be uh, inflation. But even though, and Hans Helmut, you said that uh, monetary policy doctrine have been moving uh, hand in hand with uh, crisis, uh, I would make it maybe a bit broader because they also have to uh, uh, take into account uh, the economic context, the, uh, uh, the new challenges and the political environment. And this is all in, uh, uh, in the mix that uh, uh, in their full independence, central bank do take into account. 
And uh, what is really thrilling with this issue is how much you can see uh, through the different article in their diversity that um, doctrines have been moving on ahead, but uh, somehow you could say that they have been, uh, they have, uh, monetary policy has adapted to the new situation in practical terms, but behind you always can see that there are uh, theoretical or ideological approach that do say where you will go, or and this is something that is also uh, for us to keep in mind when we will we'll now have the, the debate about how do monetary policy have to adapt to the new context of uh, inflation. But my contribution to this uh, issue was uh, uh, dedicated to uh, democratic accountability, and I think this is, of course, a very, very important uh, issue that uh, is not going to be uh, undermined but, uh, by the new debate uh, around inflation, uh, even maybe on the contrary. Uh, let me go back to the logic of the treaty, because uh, uh, I will just mention en passant that uh, during the Conference for the Future of the Union, uh, and it was debated uh, not later than on Monday in the European Parliament, uh, that there will be a, a, an attempt for a revision of the treaty, but uh, in this conference, nobody proposed to change any article on monetary policy, neither Article one, uh, one, 127 nor 248, that define the responsibility, the democratic responsibility of the Central Bank before the European Parliament and only before the European Parliament. Why am I insisting so much on this? Because I think this is sometimes in the public debate undervalued. If you compare the situation with the US, of course in the US, the Congress can uh, modify the statute and can and have a strong uh, power in the appointment of the member of the Fed, which is not the case uh, in the European Parliament. Even though the European Parliament has developed practice of uh, monetary dialogue, hearings, uh, not hearing exactly, the ECB doesn't want it to be called like this, and I believe they are supported by some political uh, responsible. Um, but all good practice that goes way beyond what's happening in the Congress. Just to give you one example, you have m m four uh, monetary dialogue a year between the president of the ECB and the European Parliament. In the Congress, it's only twice a year. But this is not. This is an institutional aspect that we have to 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 keep in mind because if the mandate and the, the practice of central bank is moving, um, they move from the comfort somehow a situation they were when the Maastricht Treaty was uh, 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 written. What do I mean by when I say this? Well, it's what you've been the three of you discussing: new doctrine have uh, obliged uh, uh, central bank, including the ECB, to enter uh, a non-conventional monetary policy. And this one does have an impact on, or side effect, uh, beyond uh, monetary policy. And uh, there's now a, a full academic uh, debate about uh, the distribution effect, active or passive, of monetary policy in the non-conventional approach that needs to be uh, 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 included in the accountability debate. And this is one big chapter, but the other chapter is of course when monetary policy is entering uh, the achievement of what we call the secondary objectives. 
Uh, if you look at the approach by the European Parliament, it all started in 1998. Um, and the Parliament, from the beginning, always said that it needs to have a look uh, what the ECB would do beyond the price stability when they will, following Article 127, uh, look at uh, the, the contribution the monetary policy can have for the uh, uh, the proper wording of the treaty is the uh, support to general economic policy in the Union. Who is going to define this one? And who is going to define how uh, monetary policy can contribute to green transition, to digital currency? Uh, I think nobody uh, contests the fact that central bank can define and are the place where stability price can be defined. But when it comes to the secondary objective and to the consequences of non-conventional uh, monetary policy, the question is open. Um, it's a debate that is now quite strongly uh, 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 on the table of academics. In the European Parliament, it started uh, to be, uh, uh, if I may say, a hot potato after the council uh, uh, decision. Uh, because then, I think the ECB also realized they might have an interest to strengthen and to, to go back to the logic of the treaty, which is this accountability of the ECB before the European Parliament. Um, this was the start. And there's one uh, uh, precedent that uh, can be used, which is the interinstitutional agreement that had been settled between the European Parliament and the ECB when the uh, uh, SSM uh, was, uh, was created. Because if you look at the logic of the treaty, it's exactly the same article that would allow such an interinstitutional agreement between the European Parliament and the ECB. It's a still an ongoing process, and uh, I understand for the time being, uh, the chair, Madame Lagarde, doesn't have a, a, a mandate from the governing council to negotiate such an interinstitutional agreement, but I think this is going to be a very important uh, piece of, of the debate. I don't want to be longer just to allow for uh, the, the debate with the audience, but I think this is critical uh, point. And of course, I invite everybody to go back to our website where you can uh, order or read uh, the full uh, uh, issue. Thank you so much, Pervance. And I, I cannot emphasize how important it is the point that you raise on, on, on the issue of accountability. I mean, that is the basis of the democratic construction. So I think it's, it's one should not, should not underestimate how important this is. And I would really like to come back to that, actually. Uh, but first of all, let me thank you all for, uh, for uh, giving us a, a summary, actually. I think a very how you manage it, I'm not quite sure how you've given us such a good summary of what is undoubtedly a very, very uh, rich uh, contribution in, your, uh, uh, in the special issue of the Revue. Um, there is uh, a lot of questions coming in, all of them. Uh, if I may interpret them correctly, have to do with the future because we are now in, of course, in a very, uh, a very unfortunate circumstances and, and important to understand how and what, what tools we have in our disposal that will help us deal with current problems and not just on inflation. But on the inflation, I would like perhaps to sort of uh, sum up a few of the questions that are coming and, and pose the following question. The macroeconomic environment, uh, of course, we are just done a monetary policy strategy review, both in this part of the mm. world and also in the US, drawing on the lessons of two crises uh, that uh, actually were very different to between themselves, but also very different to the current crisis. 
Um, so the first question that Beck's asking, of course, is you know, how well can we deal with the challenges that we have uh, ahead of us? Uh, both on the fiscal side and on the monetary side. On the fiscal side, we have certainly in the euro area overextended fiscal positions. Um, and, and importantly, it seems that now after the third crisis in 12 years, we're now in a state of perma-crisis. <laughs> so undoubtedly, there will be a different role, or perhaps bigger role for fiscal policy, but from a very difficult starting position, namely an indebtedness position. So that defines one side of the macroeconomic policy uh, toolbox. Uh, on the monetary policy side, also the balance sheets of central banks are much, uh, uh, much bigger than they were. They themselves pose interesting risks that we have not encountered yet. How do we reduce those balance sheets or do we keep them or how do, how do, how do we manage those uh, without necessarily introducing policy uncertainty more than we absolutely have to? So the macro environment uh, uh, is very different to what it was 10 years ago, and the tools have been, let me put it this way, the starting point of the tools that we know uh, are also are not very favorable. So, and now we have also have a new framework of a strategy that we, it was based, the revision of the strategy was based on two previous crises. So I think uh, that Benoit has raised some of the, of the, of the dilemmas. Um, inflation is now uh, um, at levels that we haven't seen in decades, but they're also of the type that they have nothing to do with demand or have perhaps less to do with demand and more to do with other stuff, stuff that doesn't necessarily are in the competence areas of the central banks. Uh, in the meanwhile, the perceptions of the consumer is uh, that these, the central banks need to be very active because inflation, which they understand as the mandate of the central bank, is increasing and increasing very decisively. So how do we begin to think about a very different world than the one uh, that uh, for which policy monetary policy was uh, first designed? Um, can I have your initial thoughts, uh, perhaps starting back with you, Hans Helmut, on this, uh, on this issue, a few thoughts, and we can go back uh, around the table, virtual table. So first, COVID. In terms of this, the shock, pretty similar what we now have, this nasty war in, in, in the Ukraine is actually amplifying the issues which we were facing uh, since uh, March or February uh, 2020. In terms of inflation, what is happening there is you have a shock, a negative shock on aggregate supply. Uh, you have issues with um, demand not all over the place, in a very diverse way. So it's not only cost push and demand somehow um, in a very heterogeneous way is affected by, uh, by this. Um, and that's now also happening in, in, with, uh, as a, in the wake of the Ukraine war. Um, and much of that from a ver very uh, conservative monetary policy uh, view is beyond the reach, or simply beyond the reach of monetary policy. Um, so supply shocks, if they don't turn out to be become embedded, create spillover effects. Um, monetary policy cannot do much about it. And uh, that is why it's important, um, on my book, not to go away, f so n restart this strategy uh, debate again. 
What is important is that the institution has credibility. And this credibility is anchored in, in, in its capacity to deliver on those things wh where it can be, can have an effect. And now it gets, so you, you've been raising the most complicated question, <laughs> which I can, can imagine. Now it comes to uh, what Benoit said, the interaction with fiscal policy. And of course, in the European space, it's much more difficult, given our heterogeneity in terms of fiscal positions, fiscal, fiscal space. Let me just uh, address two points. The first is um, we can easily end up, if things get bad, in a situation where rollover risk reemerges, where monet monetary policy becomes, um, in the terms of it, its impact, um, very diverse across across Europe for the reason Athanasius mentioned. Uh, if we see if we see uncertainty creating rollover risk, spreads widening, for no good substantial reasons, but just for access to liquidity. I do think, um, and Atanasius showed, I do think we have to go back where we've been uh, in response to this crisis, unless we don't want, unless we would like to accept very substantial products. Uh, the second thing is, uh, monetary policy was for a long time on the receiving end in terms of fiscal policy running away, not taking responsibility. Uh, and this m bad notion of the only game in town. Um, uh, and this is in particular an attractive and an incentive compatible uh, uh, response in, in the European domain. So uh, fiscal policy has come to, uh, to the stage. And fiscal policy in that case means we might end up in, 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 in a situation where, where fiscal space is so unevenly distributed across Europe um, that you have to come up uh, with a common approach. I guess that's what uh, <laughs> now is emerging in, in policy debates in southern Europe. You see, I'm taking a southern European view here. And I do that for a reason. If you do think you always have to think in terms of counterfactuals. You, if you do think this effort, which has been launched long ago by the likes of Pervange, if, if you think uh, this is welfare creating, you have to come up with consistent measures to, to, uh, to support it. Um, let me stop on that point. And uh, I just echo what Athanasius said. In, in Pauli Kraube and others have shown that. In 2011, 2012, uh, we had uh, really deep trouble in some euro area countries, which were in terms of their economics, not uh, different from the UK, for example. But spreads were completely different because there was, um, there was no sentiment that there would be anything like a, like a, like a, like a backer, uh, backstop. Whatever it takes without doing anything, dealt with that. And um, I think that's an inconsistency. We have to deal with it. And if we have to go to referenda, <laughs> referenda I know it will be difficult, but uh, 
If you would like to keep this thing going, I think it's worthwhile, very much worthwhile, you have to think about the proper instruments to defend it. Sorry for being too long. No, 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 quite good. I mean, <laughs> this is. A, I wish we had more time, actually, because there's so many things to discuss here. But uh, Benoit, can I can I ask you? And, and of course, please uh, comment on on any of the things that I raised. But I also wanted to pick on what Hans Helmut said on this issue of credibility. The credibility of the uh, of the of the ECB uh, is defined on, on any central bank really by, by what it does on the things that it can affect. But actually, my my worry is that this time around, because the shock is so different, its credibility might be affected uh, based on the performance of things that not it doesn't necessarily can do something about. And we're thinking of an inflationary shock that is primarily supply-driven, which the central bank cannot affect. And you know the dynamics that the ECB is facing, uh, and of course I see people here are asking your views on what is going to happen on the on the July meeting. Uh, <laughs> our audience always wants to know what the next interest rate decision is going to be. But I think beyond that, how would uh, the ECB deal with the such dilemmas that it faces? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, uh, I, I certainly agree that, uh, that, that the ECB is not, in, is not in an easy place. Uh, <laughs> but I think we the way we can best help the, the ECB is to uh, is to make uh, two two basic points uh, being heard more, more loudly in the European discussion. The first point is um, there is a significant difference between Europe and the US when it comes to inflationary pressures. Uh, in the US, inflation has been fueled by an extraordinary fiscal uh, impulse uh, and also by extraordinarily tight labor markets uh, and both compound to generate the current level of inflation. Uh, in Europe, uh, we didn't have, we never had as much uh, fiscal impulse as in the U.S., and uh, we don't have as much uh, uh, tightness in the labor markets. And wage pressures are, are building up, but they are still very moderate in comparison. So, um, in all likelihood, and given the information we have today, inf uh, the uh, inflationary surge uh, is uh, is more likely to be uh, to be uh, to be of the temporary nature in uh, in Europe than in the U.S. It may, that which doesn't mean it's going to, to, to end tomorrow, obviously. I mean, there are, there are kind of uh, uh, pent-up uh, uh, cost pressures in the, in the pipe, uh, food inflation, uh, energy inflation, of course, and this is going to continue to build, to build up into, uh, into uh, downstream inflation. But um, uh, the, uh, the, overall, uh, the overall pressure is much in the pipeline, it's much less in the US. I think that's not always very well understood. Uh, and second, uh, as you said, Maria, uh, the ECB uh, cannot do that much in face of a supply shock. And the best, and here I totally concur with Hans Helmut that the best the uh, ECB can do is to protect the credibility of its long-term encore, that is the 2% objective, uh, which, uh, which implies that they may have to act uh, as a way to uh, kind of uh, take out of the table the risk of the anchoring of an up upside the anchoring of inflation expectations. And they may have, and given the current conversation around inflation, they may have to act uh, and uh, and put their, their money where, the, where their mouth is. That is to act uh, both on uh, on QE and on uh, and and and, uh, and later on on rates to uh, to put that uh, risk of the occurring uh, uh, to to push it out of the conversation. And 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 that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but still, fundamentally, the inflationary pressures are less in Europe than in the 
uh, US and uh, eventually uh, the ECB may have to do less what, than what is currently being uh, uh, priced in, 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 uh, in, in market expectations, which I think would be a, a relatively a relatively uh, um, a relatively good outcome. So yes, it's, all, it's about credibility, it's about showing markets in a visible way that the, that the ECB is ready to act. And I think that's absolutely uh, appropriate, but it's also about monitoring the situation. And just to finish and to kind of uh, echo uh, a point uh, Athanasi also made in his presentation, certainly the ECB will have to keep a close eye on uh, market conditions throughout Europe, uh, that is on, uh, on spreads. Uh, to, uh, it, I think it is, it is inevitable that spreads uh, widen in an environment of, uh, uh, in a, against the background of monetary normalization. Uh, that is something that has to happen. But the ECB will have to keep a very close, uh, a very close uh, eye on spreads to avoid that uh, spread uh, divergences would uh, would uh, would add to fragmentation and would hamper monetary policy transmission. But I'm sure they are, I'm sure they are very well aware of that. And that, of course, is a, a great cue to uh, to pass to uh, to Athanasius and to to come to the heterogeneity argument. Um, and that, of course. There is various aspects of heterogeneity that are of relevance to the euro area in a way that they are not of relevance uh, to the U.S. at some level. Um, let me let me uh, start with with inflation. Of course, the the the, the, um, the comparison between the EU and the U.S. when it comes to inflation uh, is of the way that uh, Benoit you just described it. But if you look at national uh, inflation rates, um, they range. I mean, in the in the latest numbers, the, m the March numbers that I that I looked at, they range from four to four forty five percent all the way to fourteen percent in some countries. Right? They are small countries, and therefore they do not feed into. Um, into the average numbers, but they are national numbers nevertheless, which of course adds to perceptions about, and that's why the issue of credibility that uh, Hans Helmut raised is so important uh, in my view. Um, but heterogeneity uh, is, is, uh, is of course also on the financial fragmentation. And here I come to you, Athanasius, because you've raised this point very vociferously. Um, and and what, do we do, what do we do about this? How can the ECB manage uh, uh, its monetary policy objectives but without introducing a monetary policy or any other type of uncertainty, policy uncertainty in the, in the mix. Um, and with that, I wanted to ask you a technical question because I think you will have a view on it. Um, I think we're all expecting that there is going to be an, uh, an increase in the interest rates at some point in the near future. Can we imagine not a quantitative tightening but a continuation of quantitative easing at the same time as interest rates go up, precisely with the view of sort of the monetary policy side tightening in order to manage the anchoring of expectations uh, uh, and of course the demand side, but reducing the risk of financial fragmentation by keeping some sort, and I'm, I'm not referring to any particular instrument, but some sort of a quantitative easing, not tightening. Thank you, Maria. And uh, how much time do I have to address this? <laughs> 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 well, if you take a few minutes. But let me start with the simple ones. Let yeah. me start with the simple ones. So uh, with respect to the July meeting, uh, I'm going to follow Benoit. It's up to the ECB Governing Council uh, to figure out what, uh, what, what they are going to do. But I think we all agree right now that uh, uh, in light of how high inflation is, uh, policy needs to be tightened. And personally, uh, right now, I would recommend both an increase in, uh, uh, in, in interest rates, uh, nominal interest rates, and a reduction of the balance sheet. And I will come to your question, Maria, yeah. on that uh, as well. I want to note that an increase in nominal interest rate right now 
given how high inflation is and given how high inflation is expected to be in coming quarters, does not correspond to tight monetary conditions. Monetary conditions are actually much easier now than they were uh, before, before the war in, uh, in Ukraine. Now, I have, to, I have to then go back and say, what's the guide? Uh, uh, I think here it's very important to follow through with the uh, new framework, uh, the emphasis that the ECB has given on sustaining a 2% uh, inflation objective in the long run. And as Benoit and Hans Gelsink uh, mentioned, maintaining the credibility that they will deliver on that objective in the long run. Uh, there, is, there is nothing a central bank can do to, uh, to fight uh, rising energy prices, uh, which is uh, the, the main cause of, uh, of, of inflation we now see in Europe. But it will have uh, effects on other prices, and those effects, those secondary effects, need to be dealt with in order to maintain inflation expectations well anchored. My view, policy needs to tighten right now in nominal terms. It's not clear if it needs to tighten in real terms or not, but policy does need to tighten in nominal terms and quite significantly. Now, uh, at the same time, uh, you need to worry about the fragmentation issue that has come up. Uh, Maria, with respect to, to, to your, um, uh, your question, uh, no, I would not suggest that, uh, uh, that the central bank maintains a large balance sheet in order to deal with fragmentation issues. That's not really uh, how a central bank should deal with fragmentation issues. As, uh, uh, as uh, uh, Hans Helmut <laughs> pointed out um, before, the issue is what is the framework that is in place that ensures stability without the need to do much or any uh, purchases of, of assets uh, uh, in, uh, uh, around us. And, uh, and this, is, uh, this is what we would associate uh, with, uh, with the credibility aspects of uh, the central bank serving as a backstop to eliminate unnecessary, self-fulfilling, adverse equilibria in debt markets. When I was on the governing council of the ECB and later on when Benoit joined us, but you know, by the time Benoit joined us, we had already messed up. I think we made a big mistake at the, at the ECB in that we did not fight as much as a central bank should, uh, defending governments from adverse self-fulfilling equilibria and the ECB still has not completed uh, its strategy review on this aspect. Talked about the strategy review before, and I'm giving a lot of credit to the ECB for the adoption of the 2% inflation objective. I also give a lot of credit to the ECB, I want to go back to, uh, to the discussion we had earlier on the secondary mandate. For the first time in its history, the ECB acknowledged uh, its responsibility to support growth and employment in the euro area. It was always there. So it's very important that that has been acknowledged. This has been done. What the ECB did not do with its policy strategy yet, and they still have not done it, is review the flaws in the implementation framework. For example, the reliance on credit rating agencies. This is the most obvious one that needs to be fixed. This has to be addressed. This has to be fixed. In my view, uh, the ECB can actually ensure stability uh, of, uh, uh, of government bond markets in the euro area without purchases of government debt, simply by modernizing the framework it uses for, 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 um, uh, uh, for implementing uh, monetary policy, which would make uh, its, uh, its job much, much uh, simpler. Of course, in the current environment, you mentioned we have heterogeneity around the euro area. 
yes, uh, a big part of the heterogeneity we see in inflation uh, is really coming from the fact that different economies uh, depend in depend to varying degrees on uh, energy imports, since energy is the biggest component of the inflation. We we now see the uh, 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 the effects are going to depend quite a bit on exactly what is the cost of energy. Uh, country by country in the in the euro area, and, and there are differences in that. That's not something that should affect monetary policy. This is something that uh, I hope going forward, as the European Union uh, project strengthens, uh, gives us yet another opportunity to see, yes, this is another area where it would be the benefit of the European Union to have a common policy. Common energy policy is in order, in my view, the very same way that I think we're recognizing since the war started, a common foreign policy, a common defense policy uh, is, is in order, or at least going towards that direction within the limits uh, uh, that, that are allowed uh, in, uh, in, the, in the current treaty and what can be achieved uh, moving forward. Let me stop here in the interest of time, but I can come back and, and respond to any specific questions uh, that you may have. Thank you very much, Athanasius. And these topics, I can assure you, are very thoroughly discussed in Brussels and will be for some time. Um, can I come to you, Pravash? You, 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 you've raised a very interesting point, which I think is underestimated and a little known on the issue of accountability. That the, the when the ECB comes and speaks to the European Parliament, this is not done because it has to. It does it because it itself it deems it a necessary part of its democratic accountability process. And you've, you've made the comparison again with the US very instructively that it does it actually at greater frequency than the, the US authorities do it. But I mean, I think it still is something that needs to be uh, uh, institutionally fixed. And you know, how would you go about uh, co correcting what, if you allow me, call is a, a flaw in the structure, in the, in the, uh, in the architecture of the monetary union? How would you go about correcting for that? Thank you for this uh, easy question. Uh, I've tried <laughs> to answer it uh, in, in the article uh, published in, in, in Monsieur of the Revue. Um, my broad uh, proposal goes back to something the Parliament has had uh, um, uh, suggested from the beginning, because the whole question is how does, um, or part of the question is how does the ECB define its mandate when it comes to the support to the uh, general economic policy of the Union. And for that, in the full respect of the independence of the ECB, uh, I believe that the full debate in the plenary of the Parliament with the President of the Eurogroup, uh, the President of the Council, if needed, the President of the Commission and the President of uh, the ECB would be a, a good momentum to define this. Uh, it's easy say, not easy implemented, easy drafted and blah, blah, blah. But I think the logic of the institutional equilibrium without uh, 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 putting in danger the independence of the ECB would be this. And somehow I think the ECB should feel uh, much uh, uh, better off in such a situation where they cannot be accused to have such or such definition of what it's the, is the general uh, economic objective of the union. It's not up to the ECB to define it. Yeah. Huh? Uh, but let me go back to, to your first question, very in, in, in a nutshell. Just to say that uh, I will not interfere with the ECB will do uh, in July. 
Uh, I know uh, Christine Lagarde will be in front of the European Parliament on the 20th of June. I can imagine she will be very much challenged of this over this question about inflation. And to, 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 to go back to what Athanasio said uh, regarding energy, I fully agree with you, except now the challenge is a very short-term challenge, also with all the social consequences of the war in Ukraine uh, that will not be... Uh, uh uh, off the table with uh, an energy policy that we know will take time to have a uh, concrete result. And when it comes to the fiscal policy, uh, because we had all this debate, is there room for maneuver in the tools in the member state? Uh, the crisis has, had, uh, has allowed to put on the table a brand new uh, tool, which is the common borrowing capacity even though at this stage it's a one-off and it's not Eurozone specific, but I think this will not come out of the table very quickly. It it's there and it will be one basis for the future discussion. <laughs> let's, see, let's see how this evolves. It's very interesting actually because that's one of the, one of the possibilities of using extra tools. I, I'd like to apologize for running over time, but I find it absolutely essential that we discuss these issues and since we have you here, what a great opportunity to do that. Um, perhaps I can do one more uh, tour de table and ask you for one final thought on, uh, on the way forward because really the challenges ahead are, 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 are important A and somebody has to prioritize. What would be your priorities in terms of the role of, of monetary policy but also of broader institutional linear because uh, you've all touched on them actually, broader institutional linear in terms of being able to strengthening the robustness of the EU and of course managing uh, uh, important world challenges. Hans Helmut. You can go first. Let me <laughs> take one which is not at the forefront, but which was important for Bundesbank, uh, communication. The Fed has um, run its strategy review by going into the field. They called it the Fed lists. And I do think it would be important um, to communicate as much as possible to not to markets, to general audience, what is happening, what institutions can achieve, and how institutions might or could uh, cooperate. Uh, so creating a basic, if, if you like, uh, an enlightened discussion, debate about monetar monetary policy. Um, and I think this is a, a charge which national central banks should and have to contribute to the communication. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, Benoit, for your last thoughts. Well, I think that the, uh, the current environment is one where, once again, we can see that the uh, ECB uh, can act in a, uh, in a credible way only uh, if, she's, uh, if she can rely on, on, on European governments to, uh, to get their act together. Uh, and to and, and and to avail of uh, of instruments in all areas where the ECB can cannot act itself, and we've learned it. And the, the, the sad story is that we've learned it the hard way uh, in the last uh, 15 years. We learned it when it comes to fiscal policy, and then we learned it when it came to uh, bank supervision and bank bailouts. And now we are learning it when it comes to energy policy. That's what we're discussing today. Uh, and the uh, the ECB can uh, can deliver on its on its mandate to steer a single monetary policy only if governments uh, uh, provide provide the ECB the necessary comfort in terms of you know uh, uh, 
acting together and uh, and uh, uh, and and finding the right commonality and the right instruments. Uh, and the sad story is that every time we have to have the same discussion and to learn it the, the, the uh, to learn it the, the hard way. And uh, and let me add, and that maybe that might uh, be a uh, uh, in in reference particularly to the French discussion that it's, it's particularly dispiriting to hear part of the political classes uh, as and the political uh, the uh, the body politics uh, in some of the European countries asking for. Uh, disobeying European rules uh, at a time where uh, Europe needs unity to deliver uh, 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 on its benefits for citizens, uh, including, include, and that matters also for monetary policy. So we are at a time where Europe needs to be united, and whenever uh, Europe cannot act, uh, they need to find a way to act together. So is that about uh, moving away from, uh, from unanimity rules? Is that about creating new instruments? I don't know, and that has to be a political discussion. But what I know is that uh, we need that discussion to take place if we want the ECB to be uh, to be uh, to be robust and credible. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's very very clear. And uh, Athanasius. Thank you, Maria. So I, I'm going to start by saying that uh, let's 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 have the low-hanging fruit first. Uh, I think it's very important for the ECB right now to avoid own goals. Uh, some of the uh, mistakes that were made after the global financial crisis should not be repeated. Uh, the ACB has a lot of power to act forcefully within its mandate. I think it would be useful if the ACB communicated more clearly how it will avoid unnecessary crises going forward. That requires a review of its policy framework and the change in the implementation of monetary policy framework, regardless of what governments do. Uh, when it comes to uh, to the EU uh, overall, uh, I fully subscribe with what Benoit said. It's, uh, Europe cannot uh, uh, proceed and, and really achieve the European ideal as well without uh, the governments coming together and recognizing that we need to deepen the union in a number of in a number of, of areas, as, uh, as as he suggested. And frankly, I mean, wars focus the mind. The European project uh, was built to preserve peace in Europe. We see that what we have done so far is not sufficient. We need to move forward uh, more forcefully if we want to achieve that idea. Thank you very much. Pervence, you have the last word. Do you think that uh, Europeans are ready to move forward in the directions that uh, uh, the other panelists have, uh, have implied? S somehow, uh, it, it might look like a paradox, but uh, I would be quite optimistic. Mm. That's nice. <laughs> no, but look, look. Um, during the great financial crisis, we did a mini mistake. We did it too late, little, blah, blah, blah. Um, with the COVID, the union had no competence in terms of vaccine, and we did it. Yeah. With the Ukraine war, the taboo of financing arms felt very quickly. The question now is, we uh, I will add something maybe less optimistic because I think regarding the situation in Ukraine, uh, the, the, the coming months uh, will not be as easy somehow as what we have uh, been going through. But this is why we really need to stick together. But the way to stick together is, always to rec is also to recognize the real situation. And in the real world, the question of the social and economic consequences of this war in the Union will uh, uh, have its weight 
on the monetary policy that cannot be ignored with the, the, the risk of fragmentation and spread uh, uh, among member states. And this is the reality uh, we all have to face, but that monetary policy will have to take into account. Taking into account that up to now, uh, the banking sector didn't move or yeah. was really stable during the two first crisis, well, I mean, during the COVID crisis and the, the beginning of the war. What will happen uh, if interest rate move, we will see. But up to now, uh, they have remained relatively stable, which was, which is also something very positive we have to acknowledge. Oh, absolutely, that we have actually done something to increase yeah. the resilience up till now, and exactly. we, are, we are reaping the fruits of that. So, yeah, yeah thank you very much for at least uh, some optim optimism. Uh, and with that, I again, I apologize for running over time, but I think it was absolutely essential to, since we have you here, and we are very honored that you, you took the time to, to listen to you and to the, 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 the many messages that you've given us. Uh, we all look forward to reading the papers. I all certainly recommend that you do read the special issue of the review. It has got many very important contributions of of people with a great know-how on the issue. And with that, uh, thank you very much for coming here. Hans-Helmut, Perrance, thank you for coming. And Athanasius and Benoit, uh, thank you for joining us remotely. I hope to see you in thank Brussels uh, soon. And all of you for joining us online and here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.